Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. No matter how good you are at your actual job, even if your actual job you feel has nothing to do with writing, the way that you communicate with people about the work you've done, it does impact how they perceive your actual work. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, host of Misinterpreted and CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR. And here today, and it is July, and it is hotter than blue blazes in Florida. And I think it's going to be dog days of summer for now in the next couple months. So I hope that you all are enjoying some time off with your family and friends this summer. And we have got really interesting topic today. And it's so important, not only in the field of communications, but business business in general. And that topic is writing, particularly as it comes to email communication and business writing. And we all are on email all day. (laughs) Well, I know we are. And it's easy to be sloppy or not be thoughtful about how you're communicating in a business setting. So I'm excited to welcome to today's show, founder of Bold Type and Center for Plain Language board member, Casey Mank. She also teaches English at Georgetown University and Virginia Commonwealth University. I have no idea how she has time to do all that. And she conducts workshops on writing skills, workplace communication, email etiquette, plain language, and more. She's been a featured speaker and pre-conference workshop host for events with PRSA, ComsFest, the PR Council, National Association of Government Communicators, and more. She also has his clients with her company, Bold Type, Capital One, Kellogg's, Johnson & Johnson. So some very big brand names that apparently are starting to take workplace communication more seriously, or at least do trainings and think more strategically and holistically about how we communicate internally and then also externally with our our business partners on the other sides. She's also been a guest on both How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast and on top of PR podcast. And now she's going to be on Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified. So it's so nice to have you, Casey. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for having me on today. It's great to meet you as well. So you have such an interesting background. I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you became interested in the topic of internal communications and workplace communications and also how it ties in with your background in academia. Yeah, absolutely. So I was always an English major, undergrad, grad school as well. I got a master's in English literature. And during that time, I was teaching a lot at the university and sort of picking up like teaching assistant gigs and summer institute teaching gigs and all sorts of different teaching opportunities. And one of the things I started doing at that time was consulting. So just teaching writing workshops or doing writing executive coaching for corporate clients. And that kind of opened up a whole new world that I don't think a lot of humanities students or English students really know exists, which is in the same way that students at the university need to come into the writing center and bring their work there to get help and get feedback and really develop writing skills. People in the corporate sector need that as well. They're working on writing at work and they need instruction and they need support to develop those skills. And that might sound really obvious, but when you are in school and you're really focused on becoming a professor, I don't think a lot of English students tend to know that that career path really exists. So it was great that I got to learn there was this whole other world of instruction that was happening in people's professional lives as well. And in terms of balancing the two, I still teach and I also do consulting, of course, 
And I think it's really fun to see people on both sides. So I see students in school who are learning these writing skills and using them in a very academic setting. And then there's a little gap where we lose track of people, right? And then I see them again on the other side when they're working in their careers. And often one of the reasons we're brought in is because people will say, you know, they came out of school without the skills that they need in the workplace. So they may be able to write a great five paragraph essay, but that actually doesn't correspond to the real life work that they're doing in their first job or two. So there's a little break where we don't see them, but we get to see them on both sides, if that makes sense. Well, I completely agree. And I often lament when we have entry-level hires or interns, and it's gotten to the point where I don't hire entry-level anymore. And that's unfortunate. And one of the number one reasons is just poor writing skills. And we're talking students who have majored in communication or journalism at a major university. And I'm not sure, maybe they're teaching traditional, like you said, like a five paragraph theme. But what is missing is taking a minute to think about who the target audience is and going back and forth between, okay, if I'm talking to this person, I need to be brief, be bright and be gone and bullet point and be concise and plain and take out any fluff. They don't want to hear. And being able to read your audience and write to the audience, I feel like is a skill that is totally missing. Absolutely. The word our clients tell us a lot is judgment. There's a lack of judgment among the, the early career professionals where they'll sort of shoot off messages that sound like the way they would send a text message or They'll CC a bunch of wrong people that shouldn't be on a message. There's just a lack of sort of good instincts about how to communicate with people in the workplace. And yeah, no amount of, you know, five paragraph essays is going to prepare them for that. (laughs) No way. So I'm intrigued that you've worked with such big brands like Kellogg's and Johnson & Johnson and Capital One. How did that come about in your business, Bold Type? And what kinds of initiatives do you work on with them? Is it all about improving writing skills in the workplace? Our focus as a company is very, very specific. We only teach workplace writing skills. That's it. Now, as you mentioned in the intro, there's a few different things within that that we focus on. So we teach plain language, which we can get into plain language more if you are interested. We teach a lot of email writing workshops and interpersonal communication workshops. We teach presentation writing. Um, We teach how to mentor writers. So we teach managers how to give better feedback on people's writing, but it is all very specifically focused on writing skills. Well, let's start with email and email etiquette, if you will. It's a pet peeve of mine. I proofread my emails like three times before I send them out because I don't want to have a typo and I don't want to have extra words that don't need to be in there. I listened to you on another podcast where you were talking about the importance of email, but the fact that there's virtually no training for how to write good emails. So could you talk to us about that and maybe offer up a few of your best practices? Yeah, absolutely. It's if you sort of think about it in terms of the preparation that people get or don't get to spend all day writing emails in their working life, it's kind of comical. It's the task that takes up a huge percentage of everyone's working day, but it's not something that you necessarily take a class on before you graduate college where they say like here's how to write an email. It's really a skill that people are expected to pick up on the fly through observing their colleagues and just sort of mimicking their behaviors, but it's such an essential skill, I think. Obviously, I think there should be a lot more formalized training on how to do that well and what the expectations are. And then I think even within companies and teams, 
it would be really valuable for there to be more conversations about what the expectations are. So things might vary really widely between industries or between companies. But if new people joined a team and everyone kind of sat them down and said, you know, here's how fast we respond to emails on our team, or we like to keep our emails really short, but those conversations don't really tend to happen. We find it's more of just like you watch what other people are doing. You make some embarrassing mistakes. And then by the time you're 10 years into your career, you may become more successful at this skill. And there's not really a lot of other important workplace skills that are left that much to chance, I think. So it's kind of just an interesting place to come into people's careers. And I never thought about that until I listened to your podcast and checked out your website. One thing that always amazes me is when people use all caps or exclamation points or a lot of exclamation points in an email. Do you see that often? Yes. And everyone has really different feelings about it as well. There's some really funny articles that have been written on generational differences around exclamation points, for example. So as much as I would love to give everyone just a hard and fast rule, like writing expert is here. You heard it from me. Never use exclamations or always use them. I can't actually do that. All I can tell people is to think about who they're emailing with, like who their audience is on the other side and what they think that person would want to hear or find appropriate, which I know is not like the most concrete guidance, but it truly just matters who you are writing to, which is something you mentioned earlier, Kelly, thinking about your audience. If you're writing to someone that you know very well, maybe you can throw in a little all caps to motivate them and get them moving. That's fine. Don't do that if it's a first outreach to someone that you do not know, or it's a very formal scenario. Same thing with exclamations, thinking about you know what someone's expectations will be around that. If it's someone who's a little bit more early career or junior, they may find exclamations to be very reassuring and friendly, like a lot of us do. And if it's someone who's more late career, they might be annoyed by too many of them. So again, it's really about who you're writing to, not about your own preferences or mood as a communicator. I started to get really paranoid about exclamation points when I read a quote that said, using an exclamation point is like laughing at your own joke. So uh, that always pops in my mind every time I think about using an exclamation point. But the other thing that I've noticed, and this is particularly among women, is how apologetic we can be when writing emails. And it's something that I struggled with for many years. I would use language like just reaching out. Sorry to bother you again. I hope to hear from you soon. And just phrases like that, that don't exhibit a lot of confidence. And recently we had a new employee and she was emailing a client about something and we were doing great work for the client. But somehow in the email, she said, I apologize for X, Y, Z. And I remember calling her and saying, what are you apologizing for? You know, what are you apologizing for? And she couldn't really answer. It's just so inherent in our nature, I think, as women to be pleasers and to try to be soft with our language and not come across as too aggressive. And so do you see that? And what's your advice about it? Oh, yes, we definitely see this. And we love working with groups on this. So we actually have a whole workshop on this that's just about cutting out that filler language fluff hedging words, over apologies, and we do deliver it fairly often to women's groups specifically. So women's employee resource groups at companies, associations for professional women, they often will ask for that specific talk for this very reason. It's such an interesting thing. I think once you notice yourself doing it, and just as you said, Kelly, when you ask yourself, why did I include this? There's never a good reason, but I think it comes out of an urge for people to be very polite, deferential. They feel that they're being you know, helpful and agreeable. 
but actually we're all about brevity at my company and the way we teach writing. So I would argue it's much more polite not to waste someone's time with an email that has twice as many words as it needs and all this like over apologizing and hedging language. You're actually making it more convoluted and kind of difficult and annoying for the reader by doing those things. And there's a thousand ways to be polite without including that language. It doesn't mean you need to switch to being like rude and terse and aggressive. It just means you need to reduce those things and then maybe just give an extra thank you at the end. And then the tone will still be warm overall. So we actually have a guide for this that shows you how to like catch and omit those kind of fluffy cluttering words. So if you're interested in that, we could definitely link it. It is free. It's just a list of all of those things. And we've, you know, written articles on that as well, but yeah, it comes up all the time and everyone has habits that they fall into more with the over apologizing. I would say a good rule of thumb is never apologize for the act of communicating itself So if you need to apologize for something that happened or that you did wrong, that's fine, but never apologize for actually sending the email. Don't say, I'm sorry to be in your inbox. I'm sorry to reach out again. I'm sorry to ask. Like you need to communicate to do your job. If you didn't communicate, you would not be able to get things done. So don't apologize for doing what's necessary to get your work done. That's kind of my advice on that. Totally agree. And I'm curious what the number one mistake you find business people make when writing emails? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's quite a few we could talk about, but I, I think I would go with um, explaining their thought process in terms of how they got to what they're telling you. So I'll give a simple example. If you were going to tell someone, I think we should move the meeting from Thursday to Tuesday, that's the message the other person needs. But what people often do is say, so I was originally looking at Thursday, but then I realized we're also having a pizza party on Thursday and there's another all team meeting that day. So I feel like people might be a little tired and a little bit sleepy. So I think we should look at Tuesday instead. But all of that needed to stay in your head. Like if that's how you made the decision, that's fine. But the other person usually does not need your thought process. But I think we kind of like tend to write our way into things. So however we arrived at the information, we feel like we need to tell the other person or we just sort of that's how we like work our way into what we're telling them. It's actually fine if you write emails that way. What I would love for you to do is then just go back and delete all that extra stuff before you hit send. It's actually not a big deal if you draft in a wordy way, but then just do that once over and go back and say, oh yeah, they don't need to think about the extra, you know, whatever else we're doing on Thursday. They just need to know I want to change the meeting time. So going back and trimming that stuff would probably be like my biggest, uh, My biggest tip and thing that I see people doing wrong is just telling too much of what's in their head that the other person doesn't need to know about. Right. So, and you talk a lot about workplace writing and how it impacts your personal brand. Talk a little bit about that. I'm much more intentional than I've ever been about how I write emails and proofreading them and going back and deleting any extra words that don't need to be there. But how exactly... Do you quantify workplace writing impacting your personal brand? That's such a great question. So not to scare people too much, but we do like to remind writers that pretty much because we're in this digital environment, pretty much everything that you put down in writing in some form, it kind of lives on the internet in a digital form. So if we're speaking about email in particular, If you reach out to someone after a long time and they're like, oh my gosh, I recognize Kelly's name, but I don't, how do I know her? Like, what's the last thing we talked about? They can query in their email inbox, your name and email address. And suddenly they have a record of everything the two of you have ever said to each other over the last 
10, 5, 15 years of knowing each other professionally. And if there's anything in there that is not professional that you wouldn't want representing you, it's very easy for them to find. It kind of sticks around. And of course, this is true for other types of writing. Your old biography on a staff website, that blog post that you published, you know, 10 years ago that might not have aged so well. So we really encourage people to take inventory of their public writing, but also to keep this in mind in private communications. Those emails don't just disappear into the ether. They do kind of stick around. And the other piece of that is that over time, the way you communicate with people becomes part of your brand in people's mind. So what I mean by that is when they see your name pop up in their email inbox as the sender, do they have a feeling of relief and happiness and excitement? And they're sort of thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Kelly always tells me exactly what she wants and it's easy. And it's like, she's so great to communicate with. She's so great to work with. Or do they see your name? And we all can think of a person that makes us feel this way. Don't say who it is. Just think about it to yourself. But we all can think of that person where you see their name and you're like, oh no, this is going to be so convoluted. They're going to ask me a thousand questions and then they're going to like miss my answer when I respond to them and just ask me again. <laughs> and you already feel tired of, of communicating with them. So over time, that becomes part of your brand, not in a public facing way, but in an interpersonal way where people either have a good association with you as a communicator or a bad association with you as a communicator. The good news is you can always change it over time. So just thinking about how people think of you as a communicator and also, you know, no matter how good you are at your actual job, even if your actual job you feel has nothing to do with writing, the way that you communicate with people about the work you've done, it does impact how they perceive your actual work. So making sure that you're explaining what you've accomplished in a really clear way will make people feel like you accomplished more, whether that's true or not. But if you, you know, you do a great job and then you explain it in a confusing way, people are going to be like, I don't know if I don't know if she did a great job or not, you know? So it's like that last final piece that can really trip people up professionally, regardless of whatever other work they've done on something. What is your advice about writing an email or responding to an email when you're angry or frustrated or tired? Yeah, great question. This comes up in our email etiquette workshop for sure. Um, okay, so the dilemma in this is like, if you ignore, if you think, okay, I need to cool off for 24 or 48 hours or whatever, there's a risk that you could make the other person feel that they're being ignored. But if you answer them right away, there's a risk you could say things that upon reflection, you might not have wanted to put in writing and, you know, send to them. So I would say you could follow a policy that I like to recommend to people, which is that you should always respond to and acknowledge emails very quickly, as quickly as you can. But that doesn't mean that you actually need to answer them in a substantive way. So you can respond and say, I'll have more time to address this thoroughly tomorrow. Look for an email from me then. You don't need to say anything else. You don't need to address like the actual issue at hand. Or you could say, I just got this and I'll make sure to get you a response by end of day. Friday, whatever your timeline is. And that way they're not ignored, but you also can give yourself a little bit of time to reflect, maybe draft out your email in a Google doc, send it to a friend, let them read it over, check the tone, right? So I would say, don't just sit on things, especially if the other person is, is heated in their email in some way, um, make them feel that you've received it and you're acknowledging it, but then you can always wait to give like a substantive response. That's a really good perspective. And one thing that comes up in, in our business, because I'm older than most of my employees, so trying to solve everything on email, I think, too, is an issue in our day and age. So I 
teach our team that if there's a conflict brewing, or if your intuition is saying there could be some dissatisfaction or conflict brewing, the best thing to do is just pick up the phone or have an in-person meeting because there's no substitute for the energy that you feel when you're actually talking to somebody on the phone or in person, and it can go a long ways towards problem solving and resolving conflict that can get quickly out of hand when people make assumptions and read between the lines and emails and maybe glean things that aren't even really there in the email. So I think email can be overused. Oh, yeah. I love that advice. I mean, people tend to read the worst possible tone into anything. And that's backed by research. You can have a neutral statement, but people will read it negatively. And then, you know, like they're never reading a better tone than what you intended. So there's so much possibility for for misinterpretation and like communication snafus in email. Even though I teach email and I think about it and talk about it a lot, it has major limits. And I do think it's important, like you said, to if things are too complex to solve in an email, then take them to a call. It's not the place to be giving multiple options or negotiating relationship changes or any of that stuff. It's, it's not the best platform for that. So I totally agree with you. Well, one of the things that we use as a training tool in our organization is the DISC communication assessment. You're probably familiar with that. So it's not a personality assessment. It's a communication style assessment. So we DISC everyone in our office so we can understand each other's communication style and how we like to be communicated with. And then we talk a lot about our clients and we'll say, oh, so-and-so is a high D. So whatever you, and that's dominant in the DISC style, communication style, and usually those are CEOs or entrepreneurs, high-level executives. And so, you know, the rule of thumb is be brief, be bright, be gone just get to the point. And then there might be somebody else who is a high C, conscientious, and you know you're going to have to give them lots of details. But if you can learn to read your audience and their communication style, then you can adapt how you write. Like we said, know your audience. And and I found that to be a tool that has really helped process it in your mind, how you should communicate with different people individualistically. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm only passingly familiar with that framework. And I would I would love to know now which one I am. Is there a quiz I can take? I would love to find out. Well, I can send you our contact and you could take it and then they actually write a whole review and give you pointers for how you're perceived and areas that you probably have room for improvement. And it's all spot on. It really is. So when I started out earlier as an entrepreneur, about 16 years ago, and I took the disc, I was a high D off the charts, like 100%. And what I had to realize is that doesn't sit well with some people because you can come across as overly aggressive or assertive. So over time, when I've redisked, my D has come down in my adapted style because I realized that I just can't come across that way if I want to make any friends, if I want to win friends and influence people. So it's really very helpful for self-improvement when it comes to communication. So I'll definitely send you that link. That's so interesting. Yeah, I'll link to it in the podcast notes too. So if anybody else out there is interested in taking the DISC assessment, you can. So I wanted to ask you about you talk a lot about the importance of plain language in business communication. And you've talked about it a little bit, like giving the analogy of somebody 
saying everything in an email, writing everything in an email that's going through their head. But what are some other tips you have on using plain language? And what do you mean by plain language? Absolutely. So we hope as the plain language movement that the name plain language is self-explanatory because that's the whole point, right? So you can probably guess that it means simple, easy to understand language, but I'm not just using this as an adjective. It's actually a movement like capital P, capital L, plain language. As you mentioned, I'm a board member at the Center for Plain Language and plain language itself is a really standardized, measurable thing that people and workplaces can do as they communicate. And I'm happy to tell you more about that. Plain language really originated more for sort of public facing content. So I would say it's not traditionally applied to interpersonal emails, like an email that one person sends another. Now we do evaluate some fantastic email newsletters every year for our annual Clearmark Awards, which are the awards we give out for excellent plain language. So there's one to many examples of plain language emails. I would say that's not a discipline that traditionally, again, focuses on like if you're emailing your colleague to set up a meeting, is it plain language? But you can absolutely apply those principles to that in so many ways as well, because plain language is all about omitting unnecessary words, simplifying language to make it really straightforward, designing things so that it's easy to see where the most important information or takeaways are. I would say we use a lot of plain language strategies and science in our other workshops. So even if we're teaching, you know, an editing workshop, PR writing workshop, email workshop, there is a lot of plain language underpinning everything that we teach people, even if that's not the traditional application of it. Very interesting. I'm going to look into the Center for Plain Language and check it out. So obviously, most of our podcast audience They work in communication or marketing or advertising or some sort of business communication. And typically, most of us are pretty good writers. But on the agency side, we write for so many different businesses in various brand voices, various styles. And we have to go back and forth seamlessly transitioning from one to the other. So it can be a little bit of whiplash as a writer. And it can be a difficult adjustment to make, especially for those who are early in their career. What pitfalls do you find that most professional writers struggle with? Absolutely. So I do a lot of training with PR folks, and that is a huge pain point for them that throughout a given work day, a single work day, they might be working for clients that have really different brand voices. And then they might also at the same time be rapidly switching between very different writing tasks. So one minute they might be writing a tweet in the voice of one client. And then the next minute they're switching to a different client, a different industry. And now they're suddenly writing like a byline piece, a white paper, a really formal press release. And all of that task switching can lead people to sort of lose track of who's the audience, what's the tone, what's the voice, right? So I think the way to combat that is to have, and we have a tool for this, but it's it's pretty intuitive. It's the audience response tone tool the art. And it's just every time you sit down to a new writing task or, you know, switch browser windows to a new writing task, if you're working on a thousand things at the same time, that you would just take a moment to ask yourself, who is the audience for this? What is the response or result that we're trying to move them to as readers when they're done reading this? And then what's the correct tone to get them there? So we do work with people a lot on sort of like recentering what what the point of a communication is, instead of just you know, scrolling across all the things you have to write in one day and sort of editing them all from the same vantage point, which will not lead to effective copy in any of those scenarios. I think it gets really easy to just 
want to check something off your list and not take a minute to just regroup and think about the task at hand. So Casey, the name of our podcast is Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified. And we like to debunk myths related to communications and the communications industry in general. So I'm curious, is there a myth about workplace writing or email etiquette that needs debunking? Absolutely. My favorite writing myth to debunk is that writing for the workplace, I should specify, is some sort of art form that some people are just like so naturally good at and in love with and other people are just not good at. If you are writing a novel or a poem, then yes, it is an art form. That's a different thing. But the writing that you do at work that's tactical It can all be science if you want it to be. It does not require like a natural affinity for the language arts at all. These are things that you can break down into really measurable elements and you can learn to get better at. It doesn't have to be this like innate artistic skill that I'm a good writer. And I think a lot of people think of writing that way. And that's just absolutely not true. I love that. It is a learnable skill. It's not just a gift that we're bestowed. Absolutely. Well, Casey, thank you so much for being with us today. And you mentioned a tool that we are going to link to. Can you talk about that a little bit? And what is the name of the tool that we should be looking for? Yes, I'm going to share the clutter bust guide with you all. It's 10 types of verbal clutter or fluff that writers can cut from sentences. So it'll explain what they are. It'll show you examples. In some cases, there'll be tools, different editing tools that are all free linked that you can use to help you catch these things. What I would say for these 10 things is nobody is going to look at this list and say, I do all of those. You'll look at some and you'll say, oh, yeah, I don't really do that. But others, you'll see it the second you see it and you'll say, oh, that's littered throughout my writing. And that's when you can start looking for those things and catching them more. So, again, it's just we would challenge people to use this and try to cut every draft in half if they can, especially with emails. Excellent. I can't wait to check that out. And where can our listeners contact you or find you on social media? So they can connect with us on LinkedIn. That's probably the very best place if they want to follow what we're up to, get on our email newsletter. We do have public workshops from time to time that we can invite them to. Yeah, connect with us on LinkedIn. You could follow us on Instagram. We occasionally post a writing meme over there. And then just email me. That's the best way. It's Casey at boldtype.us. So you can go through our website, boldtype.us, and just send us an email. We'd love to talk to you about writing. Great. And that's boldtype, B-O-L-D-T-Y-P-E, Casey at boldtype.us. Thank you so much, Casey. This has been such a fun conversation, Kelly. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher, and that's KD as in Kelly Dawn. And please follow the agency at Fletcher PR. We will respond to your questions and comments. So please post them using the hashtag, hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MS interpreted and for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill, and his assistant, Ashley of Knoxville-based HumblePod. You can find them at HumblePod.com. Have a great summer, everybody. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Ms. Interpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.